Good morning. Good morning, church. Good morning. Okay. Glad to see you guys. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. But before we get there, I want us just to take a moment and pray for our kids this morning. We launched Bellwether Kids, so if you don't have kids K through 5th, you wouldn't have known. But they're over there learning about Jesus. And I know, it's a really exciting day. Uh, So I want us to pause for a moment before we get to the sermon and just pray for them. Would you join me in praying um, for our kids? Holy Father, we just lift up um, your name. We exalt you and expect that when we lift up your name that you'll draw people to yourself. And so today, we especially um, are, are burdened and just thinking about our kids in this congregation. I pray that you would use the space that's provided, use the words that are shared, use the songs that are sung, and every interaction that they have today to just plant seeds of your gospel that would yield a harvest in years to come that that we not only anticipate, but we're rejoicing today about what you're going to do in the future, that you'd call and reconcile these young people to yourself, God. I pray that you'd bring salvation today, um, not only in this space, but in the space over Uh, with the kids. I pray that you'd bless them and that you'd make them a blessing wherever they go. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, we've been in Nehemiah for several weeks. If you're new, you can go back and kind of get the context of what we're going to be talking about today in chapter 5. I'm going to recap it just a little bit, but I want to welcome you if you are a guest today. We would love to have your information. If you're watching online, you can email us at info at bellwetherchurch.org. Or if you're here in person and you'd be willing to share your contact information with us, you can fill out a card in the seat back in front of you. Drop it in the give boxes to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out and we will contact you in a respectful way. We're glad that you're here. We, we believe that we've been welcomed by Jesus Christ as his followers, and then our invitation is to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, and so we welcome you in the gospel. Um, before we get into chapter 5 of Nehemiah, let me kind of give you a recap of where we've been. Um, Several weeks ago, we launched into this where we understood that the people of God were in exile because of their sin. They had been scattered because they rebelled against God and his ways, and he scattered them under the nations. And now they're in exile for 70 years, and they began coming back to their place, um, Jerusalem to Judea, uh, to Judah, and, and they're beginning to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah gets word that the wall is destroyed. He's grieved over and he's sorrowful. He begins praying and that prayer led to a plan. And eventually he gets to bring a group of people back. um, And those that are already back, he enlists them to God's work and the work has begun. Last week, we ended in chapter four where everyone is working. They don't even take off their clothes at night. They're just continuing to be on guard because they have enemies outside of them. And then basically they have a a rallying cry. They have a community of people that are working together against the enemy and towards God's work. And then, uh, it seems okay, right? Now chapter five, we see this division that's going to sprout up among them, among God's people. So as if the enemy outside of them wasn't enough, now they have to deal with the enemy within them and their division among them. So let's read and ask God to speak to us from Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. 
And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of, your, of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it for other men have our fields and our vineyards. And I was angry when I heard the outcry, their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon, abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance from the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver. Even their service, even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us today as we look at your word, we believe that they hold authority and power and that as we come to them today, that you're able to correct and comfort us. And so once again, we bring our hearts and our lives into alignment with who and how you've revealed your world to work. And today, I pray that you'd speak to us through my meager words. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said before, as if the outside uh, threats were not enough, now we have to deal with the division from within. And I want to ask you a question before we deal with this whole passage. And the question is this, what do you do with the power that you have? What do you do with the power that you have? What do you do with the privileges that you have? And maybe some of you are saying, hey, I don't have a lot of power. I'm at the lowest rung of the totem pole wherever I work. And maybe you're thinking, there's really nothing that I have that, that I have to yield for others. But what the scriptures would say is that every person, every single person has responsibilities, 
They have powers, and the way that you yield that, wield them can either glorify God or dishonor his purposes in the world. And so the main point as we look through this passage is going to be this, that God wants our community, the community of faith, to be governed by his glory. In other words, he wants every interaction that we have, every demonstration of our responsibility with one another to demonstrate what he's like and who he is in the world. And he stands uh, acknowledging and seeing every interaction. We, we see him as Lord over all of it. So God wants our community of faith to be governed by his glory, his presence, by the fear of him, which is what they're going to talk about in this passage several times. And so we're going to work through three parts of this passage. First, their complaints, and then Nehemiah's correction, how he corrects them. And then lastly, we're going to look at what a godly example of leadership looks like. So first, the complaints. In this passage, there's two groups of people that arise, and in, in every culture, it seems that these two groups of people exist. First, the poor and powerless people, and then you've got another group of people who are greedy and corrupt. So you've got these two groups, and then we're going to find out that there's a whole other way to do this uh, in Nehemiah's example. First, the poor and powerless. There's three complaints that they bring. The first one is this. There is work happening on the wall that's costing them at home. They've given up some responsibilities back at their households in order to take up the work of the wall. And because of this, they're under stress and duress because they've given up certain things in order to take up God's work. The sacrifice that some people are making, it's costing them labor at home. That's why it mentions the wives in verse one. So you can imagine out on the outskirts, you've got these farms and they've come in. All the men have come in and they're beginning to work on the wall and, and they're beginning to realize that not only is there a famine in the land, but the, the cost of their labor on the wall is gonna cost them in the future. There's not going to be a harvest. And there's people that are beginning to be concerned. They're saying, hey, we're not gonna have food to eat here. The work on the walls has limited the work in the fields. That's their first complaint. Then they describe a famine and debt. We're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get food. In other words, we're hungry and we're doing whatever it takes to feed ours, our families. And part of what it took was giving up their only means by which they would be able to earn the money back to pay off the debt. Anybody ever felt that way that you have so much debt that you're like, I no longer have anything to earn money with? Second complaint is the debt and the famine. And then lastly, they bring this complaint that there's slavery going on. And later we're going to find out what kind of slavery it is. It's really bad and it's so sad. People are becoming so desperate that they're not only giving up their fields, they're giving up their kids. They're giving their children over to be slaves in order to buy food for themselves. They're saying, hey, can you imagine how desperate they must have been to say... Not only are we powerless to earn this, what we need for ourselves, but we have to give up our own family in order to survive and imagining that their future might be better as a slave than in the household where they might not eat. Desperate. They're absolutely desperate. And it says that some of the girls have already been enslaved. And the conclusion is, the reason that we know this part of the story is for two reasons. First, the work of God is being threatened because of this divisiveness among the people. Because they are not getting along, because they're exploiting one another's weakness, because of that, God's work is now being threatened. His plans for his people and his place and for his glory is being threatened because those that have greed and power are trying to take advantage of those who didn't. The second reason is 
He wants to show us in this story that this is wrong. It ought not to be this way. The second group that I, that I talked about are those that had greed and exploitation. They're, these Jewish brothers are being corrected because they were gladly taking advantage of the poor and powerless. The reality that the poor's conditions were made worse by their power is really awful. It becomes clear that some are taking advantage of it, they're exploiting them and even their own family, and they're putting the cost of the exploitation on the group of, on everyone, on the whole. Now, look at verse eight. Here's what's happening. He's saying, look, we've bought back people that were slaves. We're bearing the burden of that expense as a community. Then some of those people are becoming enslaved and you're selling them in order to profit. So not only were they taking advantage of it, they were taking advantage of the whole community by selling these people back to the Gentiles because the community were saying, we need to buy them back so that they can be free. They were taking that expense on themselves and some people were re-enslaving them, selling them again. Can you imagine that? The, The frustration that they must have felt with one another, they're going, this is wrong. And not only are you profiting, it's coming out of your brother and sister's expenses. And before we move on to the next uh, section of this passage, I just want to point out a few things. That Nehemiah listens to their complaint because it was legitimate suffering and exploitation. Sometimes our needs today demand that we, they, they demand what we will not be able to pay tomorrow. And that uh, brought them to a place of debt that was suffocating them. And as you consider the differences of these people that show up in chapter four to help, and now it looks like a different place. Like they're all working shoulder to shoulder, and now they're looking at each other like, hey, wait a minute. Why are you taking advantage of one another? And so again, I wanna ask you and remind you, what powers do you have? Because sometimes the things that might uh, bring about an outcry in God's people, we do have the power to not only listen, but to act, and that's what happens. God gives Nehemiah this power so that he can protect and, and make provision and help them. The other thing before we move on about this complaint, I just find it incredibly ironic that they're doing this because this is one of the reasons they had been scattered. Here's what I mean. One of the reasons that they had been taken into captivity, God had explained to them that he did not want them to take interest on a loan from one another. He made that perfectly clear in his law. In Leviticus 25, 36, he says this in the law. It says it's going to be on the screen. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. In other words, you should not profit from other people's debt, especially within the household of faith. Don't benefit from them. You can loan it. So so he's saying these people that you're exploiting, they belong to me. They're mine. And you're acting as if I'm not part of the equation. That's God's confrontation to those in power. He's saying, you're, you're treating other people as if I don't exist. And then he goes on. In, in Amos chapter 2, verse 6, he's explaining why they've been in exile. And he says it this way. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample on the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. In other other words, 
God's name is being profaned by the way that they treated one another. And that's the reason they would have been punished in the first place. So now Nehemiah is trying to rebuild God's place. He's trying to gather God's people. And in the meantime, while he's trying to work to remedy all their sin had, had produced, they're doing the exact same things. <laughs> so legit complaint legit frustration. And can you imagine the leader, like Nehemiah, looking at these people and saying, this is why we were in trouble to begin with. You're doing the very thing that got us into this mess. Incredibly frustrating. Legitimate reason for him to get angry, and he does. I just want to keep uh, explaining to you why this was so profoundly wrong. In Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 12, it says, in you, they take bribes and shed blood. You take interest and profit to make gain of your neighbors by extortion. But me, you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. In other words, the reason that you're being punished is because you're treating other people as if I'm not part of the equation. Every single relationship within the community of faith with those that are created in his image should be profoundly impacted by the reality that there is a God and that every person you have ever met was created in his image and for his purposes to declare what he's like in the world. And so you have never met a mere human. Not any person that you've ever met was just a human. They are souls designed by God, belonging to him. You cannot treat other people like a possession when God owns everyone to begin with. It's a delusion. So people belong to God. Second thing is power belongs to God. Any power that you possess, it's intended to be yielded for his purposes and for the benefit of those around you. That's why God distributes and, and displays his power in the world. If he gives you any authority from the boardroom to the dinner table, okay, any authority at all, it is so that he can demonstrate his kindness through the power that you yield. Wield, sorry. So what happens? Nehemiah gets angry and he moves into correction. I want to explain what happens in this correction because it is so important that he not only listens and he's outraged, but he takes, he takes action. Let's move to the next section, correction. Nehemiah's correction starts with him being angered by the complaint. He hears it and he sees the injustice, not only as unjust, but as his responsibility. And that's why he responds to it. If any of you are a parent, you know how to discern how, how terrible the offense is based on the volume and the tone in your house of the complaint. You know what I'm talking about? I can filter through any complaint by just the volume and the tone that I hear from the other room. And in this volume and tone, he's looking at it saying, okay, this require, it's going to require action. He responds with ownership and action. The first thing that he did was he looked at it and he knew that he was responsible. So he has this emotion. I love that Nehemiah is not unaffected emotionally by the story. From the beginning when he's fallen on his face in sorrow and pleading with God to this moment when he's angry and heaping the uh, prayers back on the, the enemy in the previous chapter and all those spaces, you see that this guy, Nehemiah, he is not unmoved by the things around him. He is not a stoic who somehow mastered his emotions. He sees them as something to be used in God's history and demonstration of his glory in the world. And so he takes his emotion. What's the first thing he does? He takes counsel with himself. So he doesn't immediately act on his anger. He takes his anger. He takes counsel in himself. And that brings wisdom to the equation. When he was angry, when he heard their outcry, he's passionate. 
And then he takes counsel, he pauses, he evaluates the emotion. And last week I talked about the difference between ungodly anger and righteous anger. Uh, I don't want to recap all of that, but I just want to point out that once again, he's angered by what angers God. It's not just by what inconvenienced him. He's moved by it. He's frustrated by what frustrates God, and then he acts on it. He takes counsel on himself. Quick side note. I just want to point out that it is really easy right now in our culture to be outraged. It is what sells ads, okay? It is what sells cable news. Everyone is presenting you with a case for what should make you most furious. And we live in one of the most frustrated cultures in history, mainly because we're being fed all the reasons we should be completely enraged and no solution to how you can step in and act. So our culture has this kind of outrage machine telling you what you should be angry about. And righteous anger tells you what God is concerned with. Ultimately, his glory. He's upset because this is going to cause insult to God's people. And Nehemiah closely associates the reputation of God's people with God's reputation. And so he brings the charges. He puts together this great assembly and explains, hey, what we're doing here is wrong. He has courage in his correction. He doesn't mince words with them. He just comes out and says, you've been doing this thing and it's wrong. And it says the people were just silent. They just stared at him like, what do we do? Then he continues on. Ultimately, he's saying, you are acting as if there is no God. Verse nine, it's not good. And then he transitions and gives them a vision of what would be better. Ought we not to act as if God, if there is a God in heaven? Ought we not to fear the God who sees all of this? And then in verse 10, he includes himself in the confession. He begins to say, this is not only wrong, but I've participated in it too. He includes himself. It's not just you, I'm guilty. We need leaders like that. We need leaders who can say, I'm, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not perfect, but I'm following someone who is. I love this because in chapter one, he says the same things. He confesses not only the sins of the people, but he says, I'm guilty as well. So in humility, he says, look, we don't need to do this anymore. I and my brothers have given loans and we're not going to do it anymore. We're different moving forward. And he appeals to God's authority. He doesn't set himself up as the ultimate authority. He says, God is over everything. Ought we not to fear him? And then he gives this compelling communication in his correction. I love it because, I don't know, we have a lot of projects going on in our house. And so there's dust everywhere. And so if you hit anything, there's a cloud of dust. Anybody like opened a box somewhere and you just like hit a pillow and you just saw the dust float up? Everyone has a visual of that. And Nehemiah gives them a visual that none of them are going to forget. Somebody's responsibility was to empty out the coins of everyone's pocket. Everybody, everybody has somebody in your house that before you put the clothes in the washer, they're supposed to get the stuff out. Moms, I know a lot of you feel the weight of that responsibility. These people would have felt a regular uh, rhythm of shaking out the dust from their garment. And he grabs the hem of his garment, he shakes it out and the dust flies. And he said, so it should be for any of you that do not obey what we've just agreed to do. And so they have this visual image that they will never forget. And every time they did it, they were reminded of Nehemiah's words. 
so it would be for us if we don't do what God would have us to do. And the great news is they say, yes, amen. And then they praise the Lord. This is like the dream of every pastor's message. At the end, everybody says, amen, praise the Lord. They're all just like, that's what we all think about on Sunday mornings. Like, Lord, hopefully at the end of this, they'll say, amen, praise the Lord, let's do it. Now, before I move on to the last section, I just wanna make a couple observations for you to consider. The first one is this, that God made your emotions for a reason. He didn't make you to be a stoic for a reason. He wants you to bring those things in alignment with him, whether you're frustrated or angry or outraged, bring that into alignment with him because he wants us to wield those emotions with wisdom. He wants to bring those into his lordship and not let them lord over you. And a lot of times... Emotions just can get the best of us. I am first in line for need of grace with that. There's likely things that God has shown you that are wrong with the world. Maybe that he's called you to confront with courage, things in your family, things in your workplace, things that don't seem right. Brothers and sisters in the faith where you're going, hey, this is not in alignment with God. And I want to encourage you to bring your emotions in alignment with God take counsel within yourself, and then step out in courage, even with those who have power. And that's what Nehemiah did. He stepped forward with courage. The nobles, the officials, he said, this is wrong what you're doing, and we ought not to do it anymore. What does it look like for us to wield that power that we've been given well? Sometimes it looks like courageous correction. Sometimes that's what it looks like. Last section, I want to look at Nehemiah's leadership. And before we make observations about his leadership, um, there's a really popular idea right now, okay? I'm going off the script a little bit. Bear with me. It's a really popular script right now in our culture that says this, that basically, if there's power of any sort, it must be challenged. Okay? If there's any kind of organized power, you've got to challenge it because it's obviously corrupt. And that's a really bad idea. It does not come from the Bible. It comes from our culture. That anywhere there's power, it obviously is wrong because if you can organize anyone with power, then that obviously means that they're an oppressor and we're oppressed. That's a bad idea. It's not good. It's not from the Scriptures. The Scriptures have always presented this reality that there's some people who have power, some have more of it, some have less of it. And that's not necessarily moral or wrong, bad or good. The way that you wield the power that you have absolutely can be wrong or bad or good and yielding great blessing. So before we move into looking at Nehemiah's leadership, I want you to know there's people that live in our culture with different degrees of power, privilege, influence, and we work hard not to neutralize that power and say, hey, we've got to equalize everything so that everybody's standing with the same degree of power. That's not what the scriptures encourage. They would encourage everyone who has any degree of power to wield it for the benefit and for the service of those who they have power over. Hierarchies aren't bad. Sinful people are bad, okay? Organization isn't bad. Sinful power is bad. I want to keep moving because in this you're going to see that there's two basic kinds of leadership and it's going to play itself out in Nehemiah's testimony of his own leadership. Now, 
there's a selfish leadership that he puts himself in contrast with, and then there's a servant leadership that he raises up and says, this is how we ought to lead. And people can either use their power for themselves or to serve others. The problem isn't power, it's sin. And sin will make a selfless person crave power, but grace can make a selfless person ascend to power so that they can protect and provide and and encourage and bless those that they have power over. So first, selfish leadership. Look at verses 14 through 19. In contrast to the culture of leadership that he wants to present, he, he shows that the former governors, in verse 15, former governors had laid heavy burdens on the people. Now, what you need to know is this is the first time that we find out, oh, Nehemiah has been the governor and he's going to be governor for 12 years. We didn't know that before. First, he was sent on this simple assignment. He's going to go rebuild the walls. And somewhere along the way, the king Artaxerxes puts him in power and he gets to be the governor of this group of people, God's people in Judea. And during that time, during the 12 years, he's putting himself in contrast with the bad governors, the bad leaders, the first ones. They laid heavy burdens on the people. The taxes are already difficult, and there were some that were allowed for the governor that Nehemiah saying, I didn't take it. Other people took it. I didn't take it. Servants, even their servants of the governors, would lord it over those that they ruled. So not only the governor, the people that worked for the governor to go around and lord it over the people that he governed. And listen, the world loves to appoint leaders like this. They love to appoint leaders that will express power that gets them what they want. That's always, the, that's the way it works. In our sin, we want leaders that will get us what we want. But God wants leaders that will work for his purposes and for his glory and who will sacrificially serve and represent Christ in the world. Now, some things about selfless leadership. The first one is this. It was defined by the fear of the Lord. There was a reverence and awareness that God's lordship was in every place, that there was no relationship that wasn't first in a, under this authority. It wasn't his authority. God had given him authority, and it was his. It also brought about humility. Nehemiah begins by describing what he didn't take. In verse 14, it seems like this is particularly relevant information in that people are lording over others. And he's saying, look, there were things that I was allowed, that I was entitled to, that I did not take for myself. In light of the fear that he had for God, he points out that he didn't even take what he was allowed to take. In contrast to the self-serving leaders that took all that they could and sometimes more, he gave up what he had. He gave up his rights in order to serve. And then he says in verse 16 that he endured. He not only gave up what he could have taken, but he showed up for the work. And he didn't just show up himself. In, in contrast to the servants and the workforce of the previous governors, he brought his workforce to the wall and he said, let's all work together for God's purposes and glory. His servants were participating. They weren't saying, hey, look at us. And then he shows off his generosity. God's glory and lordship over us always leads us to be a generous people because he's a generous God. He describes his table, 150 men, they come in and he doesn't take it from what he's allowed. He takes it at his own expense, he pays for it. He has compassion on the people and he saw the burden that they had on them and he didn't want to make their burden so heavy that they couldn't bear it. 
We need leaders like that, that live with an awareness of God's glory, a reverence of his presence, who treat others as if God is part of the equation. We need leaders who will not just take what they think is owed to them, but that will give up even what is entitled to them in order to serve others. The gospel invites us to relinquish our rights. It transforms our attitude from what can we get to what have we received that we can give. Now, here's, here's just a warning for you, okay? The gospel comes against every sense of entitlement. You should be really skeptical of anything you think you should deserve. I'm going to say that again because I need to hear it. Be really skeptical of what you think you deserve. Because ultimately, when you really think about it, what we deserve is sin, death, separation from God, eternal punishment, and everything else, every other thing, everything that is not that is a gift of God's mercy. And so we're able to receive what God has given us, not as like, look what I've earned and what I deserve, but because Christ has been gracious to us. A prerequisite for gratitude is knowing what you absolutely deserve is death, and then everything else is a gift. And it's a gift not only to be claimed, but to be given. Everywhere in God's word, God blesses people so that they might be a blessing to others. He distributes his power, his authority, his blessing to Abraham was so that he could bless the nations. His blessing to his people was so that they could be a blessing in the world. Everywhere he distributes his goodness so that we might demonstrate his goodness to others. And so I just want to ask you this question because Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, who sees anything different from you? This is the question. What do you have that you did not receive? It's just a question. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything that you have worked hard for in this world, every bit of that work was God's grace to you. What have you received? What have you, what do you have that you didn't receive? A true leader sees every opportunity to bless and serve as his real call to leadership. Not control, but to serve. Paul Tripp says it this way. A true leader knows that people are not objects of his power and control, but the focus of his sacrifice and service. That's what real leadership looks like. It looks like I'm called to protect and defend and to hear the complaints and respond with action to correct at times and to comfort and to not lay heavy burdens on you, but to protect you. And so why does this matter? I've already said this. God wants our community to be governed by his glory. He asked this question, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? God wants us to live with a constant awareness of his presence and a reverence that he's, he sees everything. There's nothing hitting from his sight. The way that we listen to one another, the way that we see injustice in the world, the way that we respond to injustice, the way that we respond to rebuke and correction, the way that we use power and privilege, what we take, what we give, all of that comes under the authority of God himself. He wants his presence to be the rule for the way that we relate to one another. And so I want to I conclude with this question. How will you steward the authority that you've been given? How will you steward the authority that you've, given, you've been given? Some of you, maybe you have great power. Maybe you feel completely powerless because both of those people are represented in this passage. 
if you have any power at all, taking advantage of those with less power and influence of you rather than defending them is not God's way. It ought not to be this way. From the playground to the locker room to the boardroom to the dinner table, wherever you have influence and power, it's to be wielded for His glory. If you've been blessed, it's not for yourself. Before you correct the world or concern yourself with the problems of the world, concern yourself with living out this reality that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True humility comes before honor. If you want to wield God's glory in the world, the invitation is to die to yourself, pick up your cross, and to serve everyone who could benefit from all of the responsibility that you take in the world. And so many times we desire power because we want to control things. We, we think that we know how much better they would be if we could control it. And God's invitation to us is to take on responsibility so that we can provide and to serve for others. Every husband in this room, that's your calling, to love, to provide, to protect, to serve those in your household. Every individual, every part of your calendar and budget, those are decisions and responsibilities that you have. And God wants his glory to be seen there too. So if you battle like feeling like you're constantly powerless, here's what I want. I want you to know that God has ultimately protected and provided for you through Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be thinking like, how do we know what true greatness is? And there's this great dialogue that happens in Mark chapter 10. I love this story because James and John are talking with each other and they're debating who's greater. And this happens. Listen, if you've ever wondered like who's more important, if you've ever compared yourself to others, you're in good company with, God's, with Jesus' disciples. The people that were closest to Jesus were concerned with who was more important, okay? So if you've ever wondered about your own worth or identity, you're in good company with Jesus' disciples. They're sitting there having a conversation and James and John, they, they, they go to Jesus and they said, we want to, ask you and you give us whatever we want. What a bold thing to say to the king of the universe, right? But they go to Jesus and they say, we want you to give us whatever we want. He says, okay, what do you want? And he says, listen, when you come into your power and glory, we want to sit on your right and your left hand. And Jesus says to them, you don't even understand what you're asking. Like you have no clue as to what you're asking me for. And he says, can you even be baptized in my baptism? And ultimately, he's referring to his death and resurrection. Can you die for this? And then he corrects them and says, it's not even mine to give. I don't have the power to give you my right and left hand. This is left to, to the Father. So he corrects them. And can you imagine this story being written about you? <laughs> you were like concerning yourself with who's going to be most important sitting next to Jesus. And now for all of history, people have known that James and John had this conversation. Who's going to be greatest? Okay. And the conclusion, Jesus gathers them together and he says this to them in Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He doesn't say you shouldn't desire to be great. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't tell James and John, you shouldn't desire to be great. What he says is, let me turn it on its head for you, okay? You really want to be great? Here's how you can be great. Become a servant. Pick up the towel. In fact, later when Jesus is, is uh, in his last moments with his disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me. I have every bit of authority. And you know what he does right after that? He picks up a towel and a basin and he washes all the disciples' feet and they're going, wait, 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 no, 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 you can't do this. Peter's like, you can't do this. And Jesus said, this is, this is the way. If you really want to be great, if you really want power, here's the way of Jesus. You lay down your life for everyone who could benefit from you. You serve those around you. You lay down your rights so that others can be blessed. That's Jesus's way. Now, Nehemiah is a great example. And I love Nehemiah because it's like, he's, he's saying at the conclusion, just remember me, I did all these things. <clears throat> but I'll be honest, there's a lot of my life that's not like Nehemiah. A lot of it. I confess there's times when I want control more than I want to serve. Anybody relate? But Jesus... Unlike Nehemiah, he always wielded his power perfectly. And the invitation is not just to follow Jesus, but to receive this provision that in every place that he was able to wield power, he used it not for himself, but for those who would trust in him. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11, it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's promise to us. He's inviting us to resemble that kind of servant. He's not only inviting us to resemble it, but he's given us a promise in Jesus Christ that in every way that we've taken more than we've given, where we've taken instead of given, where we've taken blessing instead of giving it to others, where we've wielded power in a way that would, would demonstrate our own rights and clung to what we could grasp Jesus said, I emptied myself and even the things that were available to me, I gave them up for your sake. And he invites all of us to trust in him in every way that Nehemiah wasn't a perfect leader, in every way that all of us have not taken the responsibility for our lives. Jesus Christ did it perfect every single time. And he offers to us his perfect sacrifice that in every way we've fallen short of his glory. He says, you trusting in me that Christ has paid the penalty for everything I deserved, for all the ways that I deserve death, he gives us life. For all the ways that we deserve justice, he gave us mercy. And in that, we rejoice. 
And we declare once again that Jesus Christ is highly exalted. He's above every single name. And in every way that we could choose to exalt ourselves, we choose to exalt God. And that His glory would be the governing factor for the way that we treat one another. There is no relationship, none, not any interaction in any space that we will ignore His presence and act as if He is not God. That's His invitation. And in every place that we've fallen short, he promises that his sacrifice is sufficient. And that's good news. So may we and everyone who follows after us wield the power that we've been given to serve rather than to be served. And may we trust that Christ used his power ultimately to provide for everyone who is powerless over sin and death. That we would receive not earn or fight for, but we would receive the gift of grace that is given only through Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that it would yield fruit and harvest in our lives. And that for those of us who feel powerless, I pray that you would show us how you're fighting for us. Working to reconcile all things to yourself. And I pray that we would desire your greatness, true greatness, where we lay down our lives for the sake of your name. Pray that it would make us generous and fruitful in this world. And I pray all of these things, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen. Let's stand up and sing together.